Praise God for the songs today. It's great to see all of you. It's been great to be encouraged by you this morning already. And I trust we'll leave having heard from God's word. Uh, happier than when we first came. Not that you looked depressed and discouraged when you arrived. But there's happy, happier, and happy-est. You all looked at least happy. We want to leave happy-est, having heard from God's word today. Right? Some of you still with me, some of you not. <laughs> All right, good. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help in understanding the reason why you allowed John, under inspiration, to include this miracle in his writing. So give us your wisdom as we continue in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 1, after these things, after what things? Well, it's a common phrase John uses in his gospel. The last time it was used was in chapter 5 and verse 1. But the time John writes in chapter 6, we're at least six months, and most people feel probably a year later. So from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6 and verse 1, we're looking about 12 months later. For even more context, Jesus sets out in his Galilean ministry, and his first Galilean miracle was healing the nobleman's son. You remember that? Some say that Jesus' last sign or miracle of his Galilean ministry was the feeding of the 5,000, where we find ourselves today. So John writes some 30 years after other gospel writers, and he'll cover more ground by touching on Jesus' ministry highlights, it seems. But all the while, he remains true to the purpose for which he wrote, which was to reveal Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and that you might believe in him, and in believing in him, you might have life through his name. So by this time, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, we're about a year from his death also on the cross for our sins. For a more full, detailed description or explanation of his Galilean ministry, you can look at the other three synoptic gospels. I'm going to tell you what portions of those books his Galilean ministry is described. Matthew chapter 4, verses, verse 12 through chapter 15 and verse 20. Mark writes about Jesus' Galilean ministry, beginning in chapter 1 of his book, verse 14 through chapter 7 and verse 23. And Luke writes about it in detail from chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 9 and verse 17. After these things would also teach us, per our context, that Jesus had already been rejected in Judea. That was chapters 5 and 6. We've already studied there's been multiple plots to take his life developed by now, and the very purpose for which Jesus came has been formally rejected by the religious unbelief of Jerusalem. Our hearts break as we see their hearts get harder towards Christ, as his heart grows more compassionate towards them, as he performs miracle after miracle in hopes they would believe he's God, and have life through his name, even more sad. 
by the time we come to the end of chapter 6, we will have seen him fully rejected, not only by those of Judea, but also of Galilee. Pretty much everyone walks away from Jesus at the end of this chapter. But our passage this morning is probably the most popular or famous miracle that Jesus ever performed. You probably learned about the feeding of the 5,000 if you were a child in church in Sunday school. How many of you learned about Jesus' most popular miracle in Sunday school as a child? Raise your hand. Hey, well over 70%. Why is it considered to be the most popular? Well, it was performed among the most people. 25,000 people at one time. Jesus, really, at this moment in his Galilean ministry, is at the zenith of his public ministry. There's more people following him now than there ever had been or there ever would be. There are several kinds of miracles that Jesus performed. There's transformative miracles. There's really reconstructive miracles. Do you remember the two of the four miracles John's mentioned so far? This is miracle number four since chapter one, since chapter two. Right, the nobleman's son, transformative. The lame man of 38 years, we could say reconstructive. This is a creative miracle. Two of the four miracles in John described so far are creative. The changing of the water to wine at Cana, and here, the feeding of the 5,000 from just five loaves and two fish. Perhaps more than any other miracle Jesus performed, this portion of John's gospel tells us what kind of God and Messiah Jesus really was. He was a God that is truly concerned about the physical needs of his people. Jesus is what I call omnicapable. Right? He's an omnicapable God who provides needs for all so they may consider his goodness and come to know him exclusively as their Lord and Savior. What a public swing of opinion happens to Jesus and his disciples in just a short time. Jesus goes from being adored to scorned in a few short verses. And even though Jesus knows these people fully that now adore him, who will imminently scorn him, he still seeks to have compassion upon them. As a matter of fact, I think it's Mark who says that Jesus looked upon these people with compassion and he saw them as sheep who had no shepherd. And he knew they were going to reject him. And he still demonstrated his goodness to them. So after these things, Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This big lake has several names in the scriptures. It's been called Chinnereth or Chinneroth in the Old Testament. In Luke, it's called the lake of Gennesaret. It's also called the lake of Tiberias, Galilee, Tiberias. Tiberias here because it wasn't given that name until later. And John writes in AD 90 to 95 
And by the time John writes, this is its formal name. Nonetheless, apparently, verse 2 tells us that Jesus was quite involved with healing sick people on the west side of the lake. Hundreds and thousands. So many were following him by walking around the lake. They wanted to see him heal more sick and perhaps be healed themselves. It's safe to assume that among these thousands coming by walking around the lake, that Jesus could have healed over half of them or more. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus went up into a mountain with his disciples when they got to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his men had gone straight across by boat, obviously arriving before those walking around. And why did they go up into the mountain? They were physically and emotionally and spiritually spent. In addition to healing and teaching an ever-growing crowd of people on the west side, right before leaving across the lake, Jesus gets word, word that John the Baptist, who had been in prison, has also been beheaded. He and his disciples, while floating across the Sea of Galilee, are in absolute abject mourning. They're weeping across the waves. So they find the mountain. This is not a hill. The grammar in the New Testament is clear. A mountain means at least 2,000 feet in elevation. So when they get over to the west side, they find a place of seclusion so that they can continue to spiritually, emotionally, and physically recover together, together. It is good to sit down with all four accounts of the feeding of the 5,000. And by the way, this is the only miracle of Jesus that all four gospel writers address or explain. It's good to put them all four side by side and and look at the, the detail of each and compare that detail as to the purpose why each gospel writer wrote. And it's fascinating. There's really, it's really difficult to get a, an all-sided understanding of the why of this miracle until you do that. For today, we study this miracle um, because John uses certain phrases here and details and explanations to underpin the purpose why he wrote to present Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and we'll detail those as we, as we go along. Verse 4 says here that the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was near. So this would have been in the, the spring of the year. I don't believe there's any other gospel writer that mentions the Passover in their account of the feeding of the 5,000. So why does John do that here? Well, this is the second of three times John mentions the Passover. His reason is not so much chronological as it is theological. For very much the same reason John reports to us the feeding of the 5,000 was Jesus' fourth miracle in the gospel, but the third time John mentions the Passover will be the final time, and it's the week of his death. 
We know the Passover is celebrated for good reasons. It reminds our Jewish friends' hearts of their miraculous removal from the domination of Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt. Led by Moses out of slavery into the wilderness towards the promised land was to be a great time of celebration and remembrance. As part of the Passover, each home would slaughter a lamb and eat it. In John's writing, Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Appropriate reminder, as Pastor Mike gave us in preparation for the Lord's Supper. In the first Passover mentioned by John in chapter 2, Jesus gives himself the self-designation of the temple that would be destroyed and, and rebuilt in three days. In that first mention of the Passover, Jesus points to the third mention of the Passover, his death, burial, and resurrection at the end of our gospel. This second of three mentions of the Passover, coupled with the feeding of the 5,000, is a precursor to the bread of life discourse where Jesus would preach himself as the spiritual, sufficient bread man needs for the salvation of their souls. As a matter of fact, by the end of chapter 6, he'll tell people what? If you will eat me, and you will drink of me, you'll know what it means to have eternal life. And everyone left him, except for his own 12 disciples. D.A. Carson points out the Passover to the Jews was like the 4th of July to Americans. It's a national rallying point where they remember being granted freedom and provision from God. Now Jesus has come to be the Passover lamb and he's to lead them out of the bondage of their sin and to be their spiritual nourishment for their souls that they might know true life and life more abundant and free. So verse 5, moving on from the second mention of the third Passover, John tells us that Jesus was high enough in the mountains to see great crowds having circumlocuted the lake coming to find him. Two other gospel writers tell us that when Jesus saw them, he had compassion on them. So in preparation for their arrival, Jesus, in John's context, asks Philip, where are we going to buy bread to feed 25,000 people? And the Bible says here, John says, that Jesus asked Philip, already knowing the answer, why he asked him and how it was going to be accomplished. But he asked him to test him. Now, if you understand the immediate context, we won't go into the finer points of it, but you need to understand that when Jesus asks Philip this, he's really asking the whole of the band of 12. How are we going to do this? Again, by the time other gospel writers tell us, by the time we've come here, that Jesus has been teaching and healing many more in this gathered group of 25,000 people, and it was now evening time, and, and people were just plain hungry. So by the time Jesus asks Philip this question, he sees the crowds, he goes down and greets the crowds. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom to these thousands. 
And while he's preaching, he's healing, not only on the west side, but now on the east side of the lake. So he's expending himself more, and his disciples are doing the same. And by the time they get to the feeding, it's later in the evening. The sun's beginning to set. And he realizes the people are just hungry. And they've got to eat. It's interesting to me, but not necessarily significant, that the names of the disciples mentioned in John's account of this miracle are not mentioned by other gospel writers. And these names mentioned were among the first of Jesus' disciples that it would have been present with him at his first creative miracle at the wedding of Cana. Maybe that's why Jesus mentioned their names here. He wants, to be, he wants them to be prepared and then lead the other disciples to be prepared to see him do another creative act that only an omnipotent creator can do. Just a thought. But instead of Jesus as provider, Philip facing Jesus as provider, having already seen Jesus change the water to wine at Cana, Philip in his mere humanity becomes the planner and the financial adjuster. Are you like that? <laughs> it's a real balance between learning to trust the Lord as provider and then being distracted by planner and financial adjuster. Philip makes trusting God's provision expendable so he can tackle what the Lord's asked him to do. And he comes back with some numbers, right? Lord, it's going to take two-thirds of one man's annual wage to feed these people. And I talked with Judas, the guy that handles the money bags, and he doesn't have close to this amount of denarii in his bag. So he's basically saying it ain't going to happen. Other gospel writers, if you read their account of this, what do the disciples tell Jesus? Jesus, just tell them to go into the surrounding communities, find dinner, get a hotel, watch a movie, and come see us in the morning. That's literally what the other gospel writers say. It's, it's not. The general idea. John doesn't include that here. But they're basically saying, Lord, we don't have the food so what's going to happen? Well, at this point, Andrew reports in verse 9 that he's found a young boy with some food. No other gospel writer reports that. What's Andrew found in this little boy? Well, he's found in his hands or in his sack five flatbreads and some pickled fish. You say, that's not what the passage says. Well, yes, it does. Trust me. All right? You see, back in the day, they didn't know what loaves were, right? Our English translators put loaves, uh, but you couldn't go into a Jersey Mike's or a Subway and, and pick your loaf and make a sandwich. But we all are familiar with flatbread pizzas, right? Or flat <laughs> flatbread sandwiches. Right? These were barley flatbreads. And pickled fish, you say, why pickled fish? Anyone that cans understands why you may pickle something. And it's not necessarily for taste, but it also could be for preservation purposes. And certainly this little boy's mom is not going to send him out with fish that hasn't been pickled. 
doesn't want her son to get food poisoning. So here we are. Jesus tells the disciples to have all the people sit down. Other gospel writers tell us that they sat down in groups of 50 or 100 to make it easier for the distribution of food. Verse 11 tells us that Jesus gives thanks for the food that God had provided, and he's reminding all of us to be thankful for what we have, even though we may not be convinced at all that we have enough to meet our needs. Are you with me? The disciples did not believe they had enough to meet the needs of that crowd. And yet Jesus still does what? Thank you, Father. By the way, all four gospel writers include the mention that Jesus gave thanks to the Father for what God would do. You see, if it doesn't seem immediately obvious that God has provided for your needs... When we pray, we assure ourselves that God will. God will. Should be a great encouragement for all of you um, financially strapped college students and young married people and some of you senior saints living on limited incomes. God does faithfully provide bread for his people. So goes, God, Jesus goes on to distribute the food. I'm imagining that this creative miracle is being closely observed by all who could see. All wanted to see. Could you imagine how inquisitive everyone must have been knowing how much food Jesus had to begin with? When the last pinch of bread and then fish had been broken off, more formed in the hands of Jesus out of absolutely nothing. And he just kept pinching and breaking and distributing. Pinching, breaking, distributing. And I could just see the Lord Jesus with his eye when the first five loaves and two fish were gone, he just kept pulling out of the palm of his hand more so he didn't have to look at where it was going to come from. He's just looking at their eyes, still teaching the gospel of the kingdom, probably healing at the same time with omnipotent words. These people are absolutely lavished with omnipotence in an eyewitness account. Think about this, folks. How many senses do we have that Jesus influenced in this miracle? Sight, sound, taste, feel. These people are enraptured with him and what he's doing. It's like going to a college basketball game where there's 20,000 people in the stands and they're, they're cheering, insanely cheering, but the home crowd player walks up to the foul line 
and out of respect for him so he's not distracted when he or she shoots the free throw. The crowd grows deftly quiet from screaming to silence. In this situation, it's silent. People have the opportunity to be awed and amazed, and they were. They were. Again, it is the goodness of the Lord that brings men to repentance. All that we have is given to direct our eyes and ears to the good news of Jesus as the Son of God, so that you might believe. Do you believe yet? (laughs) Do you believe yet? I know most of you do. Blessed are you who believe, having never seen. (laughs) Blessed are you. You've been blessed. You didn't bless yourselves. God granted you the ability to believe, having not seen. So praise him for that. Our eyes are to be pointed heavenward, where we find forgiveness of sins from him and him alone. So verse 12 teaches us that Jesus always gives everyone all that they need and a little extra. As the crowd is dispersing, there's leftovers present throughout the grassland upon which they were seated in 50s and 100s. Now, I'm assuming that it didn't look like a littered stadium after a ball game. I'm assuming that these people that constituted families probably properly stacked the leftovers of the barley flatbreads and the pickled fish. And they got up and they left, and the text said they left not satisfied, but the grammar here tells us full to overflowing. They were stuffed. So much so, they didn't even think about asking for a box to take home the leftovers. They just left it there and got up and went home. So Jesus tells his disciples to do something. Go around to these groups where they formerly sat and and pick up that which is left and to put it in baskets. And all four gospel writers tell us there was 12. It's fascinating to me why some say the same thing about certain details and others add their own, but this is one of those that everyone mentioned. Twelve. So what's the significance of twelve? Well, don't try to spiritualize the number twelve, please. Okay? It's just twelve baskets. Safe to say, though, is Jesus is a good God. He's a compassionate God. He had literally spent himself on teaching these souls the gospel. And if they would believe in him, there would be plenty of him to go around to save each one of them full to overflowing in a spiritual sense. And now he's given them the greatest of his creative miracles to demonstrate to them again that he's the giver of every good thing and often the giver of much more than we need. And would you please remember this or at least write it down? more than we ever would need spiritually, we have no problem ever believing that, right? If you know God's word, you are justified, forever reconciled. You believe Colossians 2, 8, 9. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And when you trust him as your Lord and Savior, he becomes to you the full to overflowing deity capable of spiritually saving you, sustaining you, and granting you eternal life. 
None of us have any problem believing that. None of us, or usually none of us, have an issue with believing that, that Jesus is capable of taking care of us physically. Everyone here has much more than their needs met. Else you wouldn't even be here worshiping today. But I want to promote something to you about our Jesus. We have no problem determining by sincere conviction that he's capable to be more than enough for us spiritually and physically, but how often we doubt him emotionally. We exist in a westernized Christianity where Jesus almost seems to be enough to help us emotionally. And my friends, I want to encourage you that since Jesus is enough to help you spiritually, he certainly is more than enough to help us emotionally. Amen. Don't the Psalms tell us that? Amen. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you so disquieted within me? Why am I ready to breathe my last and be taken off the face of this earth? But then David says in Psalm 42 and 43, what? But God is the strength of my heart. Would you beg God to trust him for your emotional stability as much as you've trusted him for your physical and spiritual stability? And I promise you I'll try to do the same. Verse 14, what's the people's conclusion? Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. This is a stunning statement, my friends. All are saying, all 25,000 are admitting here intellectually that Jesus is the divine Messiah who's come. What mercy of God to let this of his biggest miracles in relationship to numbers and influence allow these people to realize that he's God. Only they're recognizing him as Messiah God, not Savior God. Sociologists tell us today that every one of us in this room, outside of our biological families, knows at least eight people really well in our lifetime. Take 25,000 and multiply it times eight. I don't know what that number is. I'm sure some of you will share it with me after the service. This was an influential miracle. This was an influential, seismic realization. It's absolutely stunning. All of them went away believing that Jesus Christ is Messiah God. How do we know that? What's verse 15 say that Pastor Steve read earlier? Perceiving that they were intending so Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and to take him by what? Force to make him king. He withdrew again to that mountain, 2,000 feet elevation, only he left his disciples behind this time. He had to move and scurry a little bit more quickly because he had to disappear. Because his understanding of God his father's timeline for him to be king was certainly a way far off. 
You see, they were recognizing him as God Messiah because he was miraculously providing for the needs of his people. Isn't that what kings do? Certainly. Certainly. You folks that know your Bibles well are very familiar with the thousand-year literal reign of Christ to come on this earth in the future. And certainly, it's going to be a peaceful time, a plentiful time where the needs of God's people will be comprehensively cared for. But Jesus knew that time had not come yet. And so he left. I'm sure as he's running up the side of the mountain, sobbing uncontrollably, because they missed the point again. What a great testimony to us who seek to serve the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oftentimes in ministry, you teach, you live, you disciple in truth, and there's many who won't hear. And those are guttural times of abject discouragement, aren't they? Lord, how in the world can they not see Lord, please let them see. Open their eyes. Well, as we head into our baptism this morning, we're going to hear from a little girl who recognized Jesus not as Messiah, but as the Son of God, and she believed in him, and now she has life through his name. She believed that Jesus was more than enough for her, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. But I want to leave you with two simple things to ponder as we depart into our baptism and then to the afternoon. Remember when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, be holy, for I am holy. Literally, be perfect, as I am perfect. Now we hear that statement from Jesus and we think what? That is absolutely impossible, and that's yes. He asked them to do something impossible here again. As a matter of fact, in another gospel account, he asked the disciples, go find food, go get it now. They couldn't. Why does Jesus sometimes ask us to do something impossible? It was necessary for your salvation, wasn't it? Go ahead. You be perfect. Be perfect. Give it a shot. Anyone that would stand up in this room and say, I'm perfect all by myself may be shuttled very quickly to a local emotional institution. <laughs> or maybe should be. What ridiculous, arrogant pride that would be for someone to say, I'm without sin. I'm perfect. In Jesus asking us to do things we cannot do for ourselves, we realize that it takes the grace of God to embolden us, to enable us, to throw ourselves at his feet in full trust. Only he can save. Only he can provide. All that we have is of him. And without him, we're nothing. So Jesus often asks the impossible of us to demonstrate what is only possible through him. So I'll ask those of you, and I'm sure it's smaller in number, because I know a lot of you, I don't know all of you, 
Have you come to the place in your life where the goodness of God and what he's given to you has brought you to the place where you need him? The goodness of God is designed to point you to your need for Jesus Christ. So the Cheerios you lift to your mouth, and if you like a more healthy, tasty breakfast of Eggo waffles buttered up with a bunch of syrup on it, whatever illustration works for you, from the food you lift to your mouth to the air that you breathe, the comfortable mattress upon which you sleep, to the fuel that you put in your car that actually works, to the job that you have, to the person you sit next to, to the clothes that you wear. All of that is God's goodness designed to distract you unto him. God provides so that you would believe. So do you believe yet? Seated around you are several hundred miracles of God's omnipotent hand this morning. We've seen God perform miracles. Again, we're going to hear from another one just now. Do you believe yet? The good things that he's given to you, in addition to the miracles that we are eyewitnesses of, Do you believe yet? And would you believe? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for just the reminder and the rehearsal of this miracle, this sign this morning. And pray that it would have its influence by your Spirit's help as it was intended to have. Pray, Lord, that if there be any religious unbelief among us, those who know everything and then really struggle to be compassionate, really struggle to love, I pray that they would work out their salvation with fear and trembling. For those who just aren't sure of anything, present, past or future, and their insecurity, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, I pray that they would find you to be their divine security. That they would come unto you as burdened and heavy laden and find rest to their soul in you. That's a work that your spirit, O oh God, must do. And I pray that he's doing that now in hearts who are yet to believe in him as the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.